All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I mentioned this morning that uh, this coming Friday, Laura and I are driving to El Dorado, Kansas. Y'all remember Ron Jones, Pastor Ron Jones. He pastors the uh, Temple Baptist Church in El Dorado, Kansas. And he asked me to come and do my series called A Biblical Response to Reformed Theology. Now, I've never preached that here uh, because we just don't really have a big issue with Calvinism in our church. But other churches, there are people coming into those churches where they're dealing with that topic and dealing with that subject. So um, I'm doing that this coming week. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about this Romans 9 passage, and I wanted to communicate it to you tonight to give you an idea of what's going on in the world. And and then we're just going to look at what the Bible says. Let me show you in Romans chapter 9, these are the, the foundational verses for the Calvinists. So we'll look at this, and then I'll explain what Calvinism is, and then I'll just preach this text so you can find out what's going on in the text. All right, so look at verse 12. It was said unto her, uh, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Drop down to um, verse 18. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. All right, why does he say that? Verse 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Look at verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? So that's the doctrine of irresistible grace that the Calvinists, that they use this for that. All right, look at verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much longsuffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So that the the potter and the clay there in verse 21, there's a man named James White. He's a Reformed Baptist pastor. And Reformed Baptist really is an oxymoron. They don't go together. But he's a Reformed Baptist pastor. And he wrote a famous book called The Potter's Freedom dealing with this text and using this to prove that God can create some people for heaven and some people for hell. Well, we're going to look at this text tonight and see if that's what it teaches. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us as we study your word. I pray that this is a help to your people and brings glory to you as we just scripture by scripture, text by text, explain the Bible so that it clears up this false doctrine. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me explain just briefly what Calvinism is. Calvinism was the doctrine of a man named John Calvin. It started with Augustine. Augustine learned this concept of predestination from a man named Taconius. Taconius got it from Plato. All right, so the doctrine of predestination as taught by John Calvin, by Augustine, doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Plato. I'm not going to go through all of Plato's teaching, but the main idea is the, the Plato had four concepts, his theory of ideas, 
his theory of forms, his theory of recollection, and his theory of the tripartite soul. His theory of ideas are that ideas have always existed. They don't have a beginning. They don't have an ending. You have the idea. He used the illustration of a chair. So if a man uh, invented this chair, all this chair is is an imperfect representation of the ultimate idea of a chair that has existed in eternity. All right? So that's his theory of forms. The form has to be less than the idea. But the other thing, based on his theory of recollection, the guy that invented this chair didn't really invent it. He remembered it because not only are ideas eternal, souls are eternal. And so since he has an eternal soul, he remembered that. He didn't discover it. That idea of these eternal ideas and eternal souls, that was blended with Christianity to invent this concept of predestination. You can't find the Calvinistic position of predestination in the Bible. You can't find it anywhere in the Scriptures. It comes from outside of the Bible. It is blending uh, philosophy with Christianity. It's not in the Bible. From that, Calvin and then the Edicts of Dort, it was Dordrecht in the Netherlands, it shortened to Dort, they came up with five uh, points, and it's that TULIP acronym, and that is total depravity. And I'm going to tell you what they teach. Total depravity is the teaching that since man is dead in his sins, he is incapable of responding to the gospel. So when they say total depravity, they mean total inability. And what you'll find is each of these statements don't actually mean what they say. And there are none of them found in the Bible. Total depravity, the fact that man's totally depraved and sinful, that's biblical. The, the, the teaching that man cannot respond to the gospel is unbiblical. All right, total depravity. The, the U is unconditional election, that God, based on His own sovereign pleasure, His own sovereign will, created some people for heaven and some people for hell. He elected some people to salvation, and He has damned others to hell based on His own free will, and they have no choice in the matter. Those that God has elected have to go to heaven. Those that God has rejected have to go to hell. That's the teaching of unconditional election. Of course, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's completely unbiblical to teach that. The other thing, I, I did want to give this under total depravity. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does whosoever mean? It means anybody, anybody. So then the L, so T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement. So Jesus Christ only died, in, in, uh, this is not a true statement, this is the statement of Calvinism, Jesus Christ only died for the elect. If he, if he died for those who wouldn't be saved, then his death was wasted. That's the teaching. Well, the Bible says that he tasted death for every man. He tasted death for every man. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Limited atonement is heresy. Jesus tasted death once for every man. Every, what does every man mean? means every man. So what they'll say is, well, you don't understand. That means the elect. That's not what it says. All right. So then you have the I. The I is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And they get that from this Romans 9 passage. Because man is dead in his sins, and again, this is not true. This is the statement of Calvinism. Because man is dead in his sins, and God has elected some to salvation then God has to override man's depraved will in order for them to be saved. So they can't resist his draw to salvation. That's irresistible grace. The only problem is in Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaching to the 
to the Israelites there, he said, how long resist ye the Holy Ghost? Remember what Jesus said. He said, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you under my wings as a hen does her chicks? And you would not. He wanted to, to gather them. They wouldn't do it. So apparently grace is resistible. Right? And then the P is perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. Now, I always thought that perseverance of the saints was the same thing as eternal security. Now, how many of you are glad that we have eternal security? If you're saved, you're saved forever. My salvation is not based on what I do. My salvation is based on what he did. There's a popular misunderstanding that the Arminians, so uh, the Wesleyans, Methodists, Nazarene, Church of God, they're the Arminian side, that they believe you can lose your salvation and the Calvinistic side believes in eternal security because of perseverance of the saints. That's not true. Perseverance of the saints is just as much a doubtful position as the Arminian position is. Perseverance of the saints says that if you don't endure to the end, you are never saved. So at the end of your life, you get messed up, you get, you, know, you get away from the Lord, and you start living in sin. That means you are never really saved to the Calvinist. Does that sound like eternal security to you? No. Man, I'm so glad my salvation is not based on what I do. My salvation is based on what he did. John Piper, a famous Calvinist, said that you can never really know whether or not you're saved. If you don't endure to the end, you are never really saved. Now, you know that that enduring to the end doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. It has to do with living all the way through the tribulation. If you live all the way through the tribulation, you're going to be alive at the end of the tribulation. That's what the passage means. And it's really simple because that's what the passage says. So when you take something out of context and build a doctrine of salvation on it, it causes all kinds of problems. So that's the foundation of Calvinism, that TULIP acronym, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. They have two primary passages of Scripture, Romans 9 and Ephesians chapter 1. We're not going to do the Ephesians 1. We've done that many times. Tonight we're going to look at the Romans passage. To understand the Romans passage, we need to understand how the book of Romans is put together. So in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, we learn about why men are lost. In chapters 4 and 5, we learn about how men are saved. In Romans 6 through 8, we learn how men should live. And then there's a parenthesis. If you, so look at Romans chapter 8. I'll show you something. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Now, go to chapter 12. The Apostle Paul could have skipped all of 9 through 11, and the passage still would have flowed, would still have a flow to it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Based on what? On the fact that the love of God will never leave us. There's nothing we can do to lose it. But it's interesting. Look at what happens in Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. That doesn't really even flow from verse 39. Do you see that? What's happening here? There's a parenthesis in the book of Romans. And remember, the purpose of the book of Romans is to establish Christian doctrine. What, does, what, what is the doctrine for the New Testament church? That's what the book of Romans is given to us for. So what happens in this book is you get to chapter 9 and there's a parenthesis where from chapters 9 through 11, 
God is dealing with the nation of Israel. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to make sure that the Christians understood that God was not done with Israel. So chapter 9 deals with Israel's past. Chapter 10 deals with Israel's present. And let's see if you're listening. What do you think chapter 11 deals with? Israel's future. So that's what's happening in this text. So the first thing that I want you to understand is chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans is not about the church, it's about Israel. Let's see if we can figure that out. So look at, we read verses 1 and 2, look at verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Christians. What's it say? Who are Israelites. Look at verse 31. But, what's that next word? Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were of works uh, of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So what did they miss? They missed their Messiah. So chapter 9 from beginning to end is about Israel. Look at, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for who? For Israel as, they might be, as that they might be saved. Look at verse 21. But to who? Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Do you see any will of God and resistance of that will from the people of Israel? Even this undermines their text, the Calvinist text. So from beginning to end, chapter 10 is about Israel. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I am in what? Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Look at chapter, look at verse 11. I'm sorry, chapter 11 again. And of course, you know these. We look at this all the time. Verse 25, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to who? Israel. And so chapters 9 through 11, just based on the words of the Bible, not any great you know, exegesis, not any intense biblical scrutiny. Who is it talking about? So what happens is you have to have a preconceived set of ideas. You have to bring an idea to the text, that's eisegesis, that eisegesis, that's imposing your view on the text to make this have anything to do with an individual's salvation. This is dealing with the salvation of the nation of Israel. It's not dealing with a person's individual salvation. There are statements about individual salvation in these chapters, but the statements about Israel are very clear because it says it's about Israel. It's not hard to do. Remember, for the Calvinist, this is a, this is a big problem. When you're dealing with a Calvinist, the, the, the thing that I always struggled with, I'd sit down with them, I'd talk with them, I'd go through the Bible, and I'd think, okay, I'm just going to show you what the Bible says. And the Bible's very clear. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How many of you understand what that means? Right? He tasted death for every man. Is that hard to understand? But what they'll say is, oh, you just don't understand the Bible. What? What? To quote Fro Frozen. Wait, what? It's really important that we understand the reason for that disconnect. 
For us, the Bible is our sole authority. We're Bible believers. We're Baptists. Baptists, the Bible is our sole authority. See, that's why I say Reformed Baptist is an oxymoron. For the person who believes in Reformed theology or Calvinism, their authority is Reformed theology. Their authority is not the Bible. That's why when you point them to the Scriptures, they say, well, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean what it says. No, no, you just don't understand it. He tasted death for every man. You don't understand that. I think I do understand it. So the, the issue for the Calvinist is that their authority is not the Bible. Their authority is what John Calvin and the other reformers had to say as opposed to what the Bible says. So now, let's just read this text. Let's read this chapter. We're going to go scripture by scripture. Try, I'm going to try not to keep you long. And let's get, let's get through this and, and figure it out. Okay? So God's clear message is that this is to Israel. That's the first thing. The second thing that I want you to understand is that election has nothing to do with salvation. This is where the rubber meets the road. When you deal with a Calvinist, they'll say that, the, that saved people are the elect and lost people are not the elect. But the Bible doesn't say that. The best place to take a Calvinist in the Bible is Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 28. As concerning the gospel, so the New Testament gospel is the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that right? Can a person be saved without believing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? No. All right. So, as concerning the gospel, this is speaking of Israel, as concerning the gospel, they are, what's that word? Enemies for your sakes. So the Jews in this age are enemies of the gospel. How many of you know that that's true? Right? Listen to Ben Shapiro talk about the Messiah. He says, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, and for him that's the Old Testament. Right? He said, if you were in a bookstore, the New Testament, we call that the fiction section. He's an enemy of the gospel. Ben Shapiro is an enemy of the gospel. Let me say this. He's not your enemy. He doesn't hate you. He's an enemy of the gospel. How many of you understand exactly what I'm saying right there? Because he's an Orthodox Jew. Pray for him. I mean, I'd love for Shapiro to get saved. All right? So look at what it says. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. So let me tell you how messed up people are. Has anyone heard of a fat little preacher named John Hagee? You ever heard of him? Hagee believes that Jews don't need to be evangelized because they are of the elect. They're under the Davidic covenant. That's what Hagee believes. Let's see if Paul believed that. Romans chapter 9. Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So if they didn't need to be saved, why is he burdened? Because they need to be saved. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 11 that the Israelites, the Jews, are enemies of the gospel and their elect. Enemies of the gospel and elect. So what does that tell you? 
that election doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. You know, it's just like those who say that, that baptism is a part of salvation. When 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17 says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There's baptism and there's the gospel. There's election and there's the gospel. They're not connected. Keep your place in Romans chapter 9. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 41. It's Isaiah 42. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. What does he call Jesus? Mine elect. Is everybody there? Isaiah 42, 1. Real important that you see it. Behold my servant whom I uphold. What's it say? So Jesus Christ is the elect. So when we are in the beloved, when we are in Christ, then we become elect. How do you get in Christ? By trusting in Him. That's the Ephesians 1 passage. It's very simple. Again, it's not complicated. Jesus is the elect. Not only is Jesus the elect, but Israel is the elect. Look at chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. Look at verse 4. Isaiah 45, 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. This is the famous passage about Cyrus, the Gentile king that God was going to use to help Israel. Look at chapter 43, Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10. You're my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have, what's that say? Chosen that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Israel was chosen. Israel was elect. Jesus Christ is the elect. The church is never the elect unless we are in Christ. We who are saved are in Christ and we become the elect. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. And I know it's hard to believe, but these passages, when I read these passages, if, if I were dealing with a Calvinist, it, it, it would become very condescending. <laughs> you just don't understand. It, it, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It is that bad when you deal with that. Aren't you glad we just rest on the Bible? Man, I'm glad that every person in here can understand the Bible as well as I can. Or better, if you just study the Bible and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I don't need an outside commentator to help me understand the Bible. Now, praise God for outside commentators. I use them all the time. I'm thankful that God has gifted men who can help me understand the Bible. I'm thankful for that. But if all I had was my Bible, that's good enough. Right? I don't need those other people. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at what it says, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. What is the, what is the next two words? In Christ. in Christ. According as He hath chosen us before the foundation of the world. Did I miss something? What's it say? 
in Him. Matt, that's fine. The baby's fine. How many of you are afraid of a baby? Oh, Nathaniel is. Okay. Um, Dalton Robertson talks about in the South, they don't use nurseries. He says, I'm preaching. You've got people out there bench-pressing babies through the whole service. Just... <laughs> All right, so Ephesians 1, verse 3, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us. Are there two important words right there? In him. What does it say? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. What's that punctuation mark after world? Period? What is it? Does that mean that the sentence isn't done? Yeah. What did he choose us for? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of, his, of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted. Where? Who's the Beloved? This is my Beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Beloved is Jesus. If you read through the book of Ephesians, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Christ, in Him, it's all about what we have in Christ. There is not an individual, nowhere in this passage is any one person chosen to salvation. These are all characteristics that are true of anyone who is in Christ. How do we get in Christ? Verse 11, in whom also Jesus, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. Now, if you have a modern translation of the Bible, especially in ESV, who are the first ones to believe? <coughs> it changes the whole emphasis of the text. They have to change that to make it the Calvinist Bible. See, this, this is giving us the order, all right, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. When I trust in Him... All of these things become true. Here's how I know there's a, there's a flow of thought. The reason I know that is because there's a flow of thought in the text. And again, you've got to be really smart to see that. Let, let's read on and see if this is hard to follow. That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. Is there a time word coming up here? What would be the time word? After. Okay, we're building an argument. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also, time word? After that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, time word, until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. All these are characteristics that are true of anyone who trusts in Christ, who first trusts in Christ. They're all characteristics. So we become elect. So in 1 Peter, it talks about the elect lady, the elect lady. And so people try to, so that means she's saved. Well, it could be, it could either be that she's a Jewish lady or that she is someone who is in Christ. And that makes us elect. It doesn't mean that she was chosen before the foundation of the world to salvation. Do you see how they're imposing an idea on the text that is not there? Okay, Romans chapter 9. I'm going to try and go as quickly as I can. 
through this text. Romans chapter 9, the stronghold for the Calvinist, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. This is his burden. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And then he describes the blessings that came upon the Israelites. And we can get something that's really important about understanding your Bible. You young people, get this right here. What I'm about to show you right here is going to help you understand your Bible in a way that's so much better than most anyone else you'll ever hear teach the Bible. What I'm going to show you right here. This is going to be the fundamental difference between us and a Roman Catholic. All right? We believe that the church is a spiritual thing. They believe the church is a physical thing. You know why? Because Judaism is a physical faith. Look at what it says. At the end of verse 3, my kinsmen, what are those next four words? We're spiritual brothers and sisters. You see, the, Judaism is a fleshly faith. There is spiritual Israel. We're going to see that in a minute. But you are, you are either born a Jew or you're not born a Jew. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. But in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free. You see the difference? Okay. So, who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption? What is that? That God adopted a people who were not a people. Uh, Deuteronomy, or uh, Numbers 29, verse 9, I believe it is. It talks about how that, that Israel is greater than all the other people. All right? They're the adopted people. Israel is. So, to them pertains the adoption. And the glory, the glory, how about the, the fire by, or the cloud by day and the fire by night? And then the glory itself being in the temple, right? What, we have the glory of God dwelling in us. That's what the Bible says, but we don't see it. They could actually see the glory of God. Now, they didn't see all of it. If they saw all of it, what would have happened? They would have died, but to them pertain the glory. And the covenants, this is so interesting, covenant theology teaches that there are covenants. Now, the Bible has covenants. There is the Abrahamic covenant, and Abraham was a father of the Jews. The Davidic covenant, David was a Jew. You had the Noahic covenant. That was a covenant for everybody. And I like that thing somebody has said, let's reclaim the rainbow. That was that God's never going to destroy the world again by a flood. That's the Noahic covenant. So there's the Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant. There is the Davidic covenant. Those are biblical covenants. The, the covenants in covenant theology are not that. The covenants in covenant theology are the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption. They're not found in the Bible. You'll never find those covenants anywhere in the Scriptures because, again, the foundation of covenant theology is, or Reformed theology isn't the Bible. The covenants aren't for the church. The covenants are for Israel. Is that what the Bible just said? To whom pertaineth the covenants? We don't live under the new covenant. We live under the New Testament. And when those, verse, when those words are confused in translations, then you lose the, your understanding of the Bible. All right? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants? How about the giving of the law? Did God give the law to the church? Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Aren't you glad you're not under the law? Jesus Christ fulfilled that. How about this? In the service of God, why don't you call me Father Altar? Because I'm not your priest. I'm your pastor. 
We are all priests, but the service of the temple was for the Jews. When you have these priests, these Catholic priests, what they're doing is they are still living under an Old Testament Levitical system that is fleshly. We don't kill things except for fun. Doesn't have anything to do with our worship. Amen? You see, that's a physical faith. Ours is a spiritual faith. The Bible talks about a circumcision, not of hands. Amen? Wouldn't that be a tough evangelism cell? I'm glad that we don't have to persuade people of that. So, the service of God and the promises. What promises? The promise that He is going to save all of Israel. He's going to make them a nation whose people are like the sands of the sea. All those promises, God hasn't gone away from those promises. Because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, Romans chapter 11. All right? So now, those are the things that, are, that He has promised. How about this? This is, again, young people, this is going to help you so much to see the difference between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Whose are the fathers? Now, modern translations change that to patriarchs. Why? Because they want... Now, now, remember, the modern translations are supposed to be easier to understand. How many of you understand patriarch is a more complicated word than father? I want you young people to go home and call your dad patriarch. Oh, patriarch. May I have ice cream? Why did they take that out? Because all of Catholicism and much of traditional Christianity is based on the church fathers. Do you know the church doesn't have fathers? You know how I know that? Jesus said, call no man on earth your father. You have a physical father. Nothing wrong with calling him dad. Nothing wrong with calling him father. Spiritually, we don't have fathers. Why is that? Because ours is not a physical faith. Ours is a spiritual faith. The fathers, there are no church fathers. You want to get doctrine really messed up, go read the church fathers. I've done it. They're really messed up doctrinally. They really messed up a lot of things. We don't go to the church fathers to discover doctrine. We go to the Bible. Isn't that right? Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They're actually dudes who had kids. That was, that's how they became the fathers of the Jewish race. That's what it's talking about. All right? Whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning... What's that next word? The flesh, Christ came, who is overall blessed, who is overall God, blessed forever. Amen. I, I want you to see that. Sometimes people say the Bible never says Jesus was God. Does it say it right there? Now, what they'll say is he is God blessed. No, 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 no. God blessed forevermore. Okay? Amen. Uh, then, verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Okay, so let's, I want you to understand what's being spoken of there. All right, look at, keep your place here. Go to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. Genesis 22, and then we'll come back to Genesis 22. So just put a marker there. Genesis 22, and look at verse 2. And he said, take now thy son. What are those next three words? Thine only son. He had another son. His name was Ishmael. God didn't recognize that son because that son was born out of wedlock, born out of the promise that God had made. 
He said, thine only son. Not everybody that is of the seed of Israel is spiritually Israel. All right, so keep your marker there. We're going to come back to Genesis 22 in a minute. Go back to Romans 9. All right, verse 8. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also hath conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Do you see father Isaac? Do you see that? For the children... Being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. What happened? Not of, not of, he says, but of election, not based on what they did, but based on the election of God, he chose Jacob and rejected Esau. What in the world is that talking about? Now, I could explain the spiritual seed and all of that. It's in Galatians. It explains it. We're going to go past that because that doesn't have anything to do with the Calvinism issue. But let's just skip that just for a second. And I want you to see something. Um, look at, again, verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, something that's really important that's happening right here is this is a decree, it's not a prophecy. I'm sorry, this is not a decree, it's a prophecy. He's saying this is what's going to happen. Now, there's something that's really important that I want you to get right here. All right, is everybody with me right now? I want you to get this because it's vital to understand this text. This is talking about something that happened in Rebecca's womb, not in eternity. How many of you ladies are thankful that you did not carry babies for eternity? This is a period of time. It's not something that was chosen from the foundation of the world. How many of you see that this is something that happened in the womb, not before the foundation of the world? All right, so you can't confuse those passages. The other thing is, so it took place in time. It didn't take place in eternity. Go with me to Genesis 25. Let's see what's being spoken of here. Sorry, it's... Um, Genesis 25, and look at verse 22. And the, and the children struggled together within her. Okay, so this is Jacob and Isaac. I'm sorry, Jacob and Esau that are struggling in her womb. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two, what's it say? Nations are in thy womb. Now, some of you ladies, how many of you that's what you felt like was going on? Isn't it interesting that when God is dealing with the nation of Israel in Romans chapter 9, He quotes what's going on in Genesis chapter 25. 
And what does he say? Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. From the very beginning, God deals with Jacob and Esau as nations. There are two nations in your womb. So Genesis chapter 9 is not dealing with an individual being chosen for salvation. This is God choosing the nation of Israel over the nation of Edom. How do we know that? This, the account is from Genesis chapter 25. The quotation is from the book of Malachi. Go with me to the book of Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to who? Okay, is that confusing? No. To Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. And then look at verse 4. Whereas, what does it say? Edom. This, even the quotation that is made is dealing with the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom as represented by Jacob and Esau. That's the context. Back to Romans chapter 9. has nothing to do with individual salvation. Paul is applying statements that are made of Esau and Jacob as federal heads of the nations and their places in or out of the messianic line of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in the text about the eternal decrees of God concerning the election or reprobation of an individual to salvation. So let's look at the Pharaoh passage here. All right? So we see that that's dealing with the nations of Israel and the nation of Edom. So look at what the Bible says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So what this is saying is we can't force God to show mercy. Isn't that what the text is saying? For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. So the idea that the Calvinist says is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh could not believe. Let's see if that's what really happened. Go to Exodus chapter 3 in verse 14. Exodus chapter 3 in verse 14. All right. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me. All right. So this is him telling uh, Abraham, I'm sorry, Moses to go and deliver his people and to tell Pharaoh. All right. Now, look at what it says in verse 19. And I am sure that the king of Egypt 
will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. Has God hardened Pharaoh's heart yet in this text? No. What does God know? Pharaoh's not going to let him go. How many of you know that God knows beforehand what people are going to do? Does that mean that God is controlling that? I heard a good analogy. Um, So I watched the Bears today, but I recorded it. It played last night. They showed it this morning. So the game had already taken place. I knew what the score was before I watched it. I had foreknowledge. Did I have any control over that game? No. Now, God, on the other hand, could control the game. But understand, God knowing what is going to happen is not the same as God causing something to happen. Right? So here in verse 19, it says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Look at chapter 7. Look at verse 3. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Look at chapter 14. Verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. What did God know? God knew exactly what Pharaoh was going to do, and God received glory from Pharaoh's rejection. What did he do? I like this statement, God greases the skids in the way you're going. If you want to harden your heart against God, He'll help you. If you want to believe in Him, He'll help you. God knew exactly what Pharaoh was going to do. God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart until after He knew what Pharaoh was already going to do. Is that what the Bible says? This is not confusing at all, so it's really important that we understand that they have to take the passage out of context. The other thing is eternal salvation or reprobation is never mentioned in the text. It doesn't have anything to do with an individual's salvation. Then, let me just show you this last one. Look at verse 21, Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The other thing that I want you to see about Pharaoh... What did the Bible just tell us in Exodus chapter 14? Why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? So that the nation of Egypt would fear him. What's being dealt with? Nations. Rebecca, you've got two nations in your womb. Here, two nations, okay? I'm sorry, the nation of of, uh, Egypt. Now, the potter and the clay. So let me ask you a question. If Jacob and Esau is dealing with nations, Pharaoh's dealing with nations, what do you think the potter and the clay is dealing with? That's a pretty good guess, but let's see if that sticks up, in the, if that holds too in the Scriptures. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Jeremiah chapter 18. Verse 1. <clears throat> Jeremiah 18.1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, huh. Would you read those four words out loud? Cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. But you said nations, pastor. At what instant I shall speak concerning, huh? What's it say? A nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it or to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. It's repentance. Nineveh is the perfect example of that. He sends Jonah to preach to them. He says, repent. Jonah didn't want to do it. He swallowed him, had him swallowed by a whale and gets thrown up onto the banks. And can you imagine what he looked like? Right? Half digested stuff all over him. And this guy said he had a piece of seaweed hanging right there. And he walks in and says, repent. What do the people of Nineveh do? They repented. So God didn't destroy him until 125 years later when they went back. And then he destroyed them. That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 9. Let's go back. Romans chapter 9. Verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the slain lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. What has God done? He's chosen Israel to be his people. And the other nations, it's all based on what they do. Israel, those people that ultimately turn to him, they'll be his people. The rest of the nations, it's all based on right now, whether they receive Jesus Christ, and then in the tribulation, how they treat Israel. There's no confusion in this passage. So this whole passage, Romans chapter 9 that is the Calvinist stronghold, when you compare Scripture with Scripture, it is God saying, I'm not done with Israel. I can do whatever I want with nations. That's my plan. And then he says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in Romans chapter 10. nation of Israel is going to be saved, but whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you see how clear and how easy that is. So I wanted us to go through Romans chapter 9 tonight to break it down. When you see all of this stuff that's going on in the world, so much of, of modern theology is being influenced by Calvinism that they, they don't have a leg to stand on. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, so much for your salvation.